God. I think I'm going to be sick. No, you're not. You're going to tense your muscles and get out the notebook. Male Caucasian, lying nude on floor. Left side of skull crushed. Cuts on face and chest. Fingers shredded. Index and thumb of right hand missing. Roderick Thorpe's number one bestseller. A literary guild selection. Now, an adult powerhouse on the screen. Your Joe Leland detective prowling a city sick with violence. Full of junkies, prostitutes, and perverts. Still using a junk, huh? They're gonna bust me. She's a whore, she's a pusher, she's an addict, and she's 19 years old. This town's crawling with kids the same age, all going the same route. Part of the great society. The detective gives full play to Sinatra's fabulous talents in what has to be one of the year's most dynamic roles. He wasn't nice, was he? Now, come on, Tommy, am I wrong? Was he nice? He was a bitch! A bitch. Face it, Felix, face no. it. Say it, you'll feel better for it. You can't walk around the rest of your life with a thing like that on your head. You cut him with a knife, didn't you? And then you threw his fingers and a knife off the Queensboro Bridge, didn't you? You did it, Felix, you killed him. You crushed his skull, didn't you? Didn't you? You hit him! I hit him. Louder! Oh, Say it I, louder! I killed him! I killed him! The detective. Jiving much too long. That's that song they're singing to me when the guy's sitting in the car. Yeah, waiting yeah. When they're with them. Welcome very much. <laughs> How is everybody? Uh, it's been two weeks already. Uh, I like, before we get into this, to thank uh, uh, Blake's mom for, for driving us over tonight. We went to the video <laughs> store. She, 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 uh, she let us sleep over. She hosted us this week, and we stayed up all night with another uh, classic, I think. Um, I'm joined. I'm Dion Baia, and I'm joined by Jay Blake. Uh, happy to be here as always. Thanks for thanks for coming over. Yeah, for another another edition of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. When I was uh, junior high, high, mostly high school, when we would have sleepovers, um, there was this pizza place called Mama's, <laughs> and they would make like a giant like square pizza, like you know, not just not a round pizza, like a rectangle. Or yeah. And it was like huge. It was like really kind of thick, and we would sometimes get those, and then we'd have pizza for like the whole week. Oh yeah, kind of. And one year for like Halloween, my mom went to like Sam's Club or BJ's or something and bought like a giant bucket full of Junior Mints, you know, with the individually packed. Yeah. So buy like buy in bulk. So we always had this giant like pail with like a top of Junior Mints, and so there was always so much pizza left over that she would put it in the pail. Okay. And like put the top like it was a giant Tupperware kind of thing. Oh yeah. So every time <laughs> my friends would come over or we'd end up sleeping over, my buddy Chuck would always be like, Yeah, we'll go over Blake's, we'll get we'll stop, we'll get some Mega Joy Cola. We'll over Blake's, we'll have a bucket of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> a bucket of pizza for mamas. <laughs> so when you just reminded me when we used to have sleepovers and my mom we would always have a bucket of pizza. In the old days. This is um this week we're doing uh uh, a pretty a, a favorite of mine. Uh, I'd probably say it's in one of my my top ten 
of all time. Maybe the top five. I don't know who who actually sits around and, <laughs> and figures. You know, I contemplate it. Yeah, I, top five is like a big like a big saying for me. I was like top five. That's tough. You know, you gotta. You know, it, it's always like when we did the thing. Thing I would say definitely for me top five. Top five. This could be top five. I, this is definitely in top ten. Uh, it's 1971's Dirty Harry, uh, directed by Don Siegel, starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, it's weird. I've always Clint Eastwood's always been around in my life. I remember. I think. My earliest memory of him maybe is seeing like Fire, Firefox, the espionage movie from 1982, where he like steals the plane from Russia. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that like on like ABC when Just I was. Remember little. the cover, the it's, box cover. It's yeah, it's it's a sweet cover. It's it's like their answer to like uh, James Bond, and, and it, I think it did very well. And then I remember for a birthday, I think it was my eighth grade birthday, we went and rented, and I was a big. Um, Alcatraz fan when I was little about like the story and the prison and watching Unsolved Mysteries or whatever else specials in search of uh, you know had Frank Morris gotten off so we rented um, Escape from Alcatraz another Eastwood Don Siegel movie and I think that sleepover was when I was like you know Eastwood's really cool when I was little and he became (coughs) like for me like a uh, like an idol through high school and growing up and kind of also I think lent me to do film wanted to do film and uh I remember, like, as soon as I got into him, TBS at the time would just play, like, 36 hours of Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, there was a period there. You know, that they were just doing marath- They have, like, the two big marathons were, like, the James Bond marathon on, like, T- TNT or TBS. So, like, well, some channel would always do, like, a James Bond, like, f- a whole weekend of fucking James Bond. And then there were always, like, once a year there was, like, a giant like Eastwood. Eastwood. Mm-hmm. I, I, f- I feel like they did, like, every, like, every six months or, like, once a month. They're just, like, you know, 12 hours of Eastwood. <laughs> get your film. These movies are cheap as shit. And we're going to play the hell out of them. So I taped, like, uh, three tapes full. Like, yeah. yeah. I EP'd that shit or SLP'd it. You know, so I had, like, three movies on the tape. And Dirty Hair is one of those movies in there. And it blew me away from my mind when I was little to see it. And it's interesting because for, for, for so many years, I had only known that version, the TV version, so which yeah. is, means it's, it's edited for time, it's cut up for, for vulgarity, as well as it's uh, four by three. It's not widescreen. So one of the first movies I think I got when before DVDs kind of took over, they tried to like push letterbox on VHS. Yeah, there was a period there just before... Where you would could even get like a special edition where it would be like, not all movies, but sometimes they were really trying to push where you'd get like a special edition and one tape. Yeah. Was the movie, and then the other tape was either special features or like the movie with commentary. Yeah. It was which weird. I guess was like coming off of like the Laserdisc. Yeah. That was kind of sad. Like, we, we've d- we did all this for Laserdisc, and now they're kind of like, you know, yeah. falling by the wayside. So let's. But then there was a big period where they were trying to do like special deluxe editions that are in widescreen like i had the abyss yeah you know a lot of leather the like thing gun. when it came out i bought that and uh warner brothers was certainly one of the people that would push that and i got the letterbox edition of dirty harry and that blew me away i mean i think it's two three five yeah uh, and i mean it's like it's like your thumbnail how wide <laughs> it is and it's like it's, it's certainly what carpenter you know so yeah, i yeah. think it was one of the things that like appealed to me that like it's like my gosh I'm I'm gaining so much picture I never known that I was losing all this picture all these years and then on top of that it's like all the added scenes that weren't you know they couldn't show on TBS yeah. so it was like a completely different movie for me so like it just floored me um, and uh, it's weird it uh, I guess you could call it I guess maybe the granddaddy of action movies to a certain extent it's let's see let's it's, see if that's a true statement in, it's um, you had if certainly. It was monumental in the sense where you had before it. Well, I don't know. I mean, what year was Bullet? Well, that's Bullet 68. And then uh, 
Dirty Harry 71. And it's weird how police... And, and do you know French Connection? 72 or 73. Uh, I, prior to this, to, to I guess for people who, if, uh, if you don't know, police had a weird background. In the old days, silent movies up until like the 30s, police were kind of like bumbling. They were like like the Keystone cops. They were always like coming out, you know, very idiots or whatever the hell. And then once you got into like film noir maybe with... with uh, uh, 40s movies and stuff like that. They've kind of became like hard boiled, or you get Jack Webb with the 50s, and yeah, it becomes like but police even procedurals. During, well, de- de- even during the, f- but most of the film noirs weren't about police detectives. No, not but at all. Was, but you get, but you have a, st- the, the, the cops are treated more seriously. They're yeah. not treated like as a comic relief or something. And then in the 60s, you start, you still have the police procedurals with Jack Webb doing Dragnet and stuff like that. Uh, you have some. Uh, big movies like Tony Rome was a Frank Sinatra vehicle that did very well the same year that Bullet came out. You have Steve McQueen's Bullet, which is a, a precessor to this, which is, uh, I guess, uh, very uh, in relation to this is because it takes place in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, it is done. Lalo Schifrin does the soundtrack for that. Yeah. And a couple years later, you have this come out uh, in 71. And because of this, this kind of greenlit, you, you got a whole slew yeah. of police movies where you have the French Connection in the next movie. You have the Seven Ups. You have an entire run of Bronson movies where Bronson yeah. plays the and Death Wish. And not to Witch. mention, you know, we always talk about, always comes back to the Italians, whereas like, you know, with the Spaghetti Westerns and then the Giallos became big after the success of Argento's Bird with Crystal Plumage after Dirty Harry. And even when we talked about like futuristic, like post-apocalyptic movies as a side cast. Yeah. On Podwitz. Podwitz.com. <laughs> Check out our sidecast. We talked about how, uh, how like Mad Max and Escape from New York kind of launched this like urban or these like apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic Italian movies. There is like the other big, other than the horror movies of the 70s for for Italian cinema, like, uh, you know, B, like B cinema. The other big thing is like crime. Like genre. It's like crime stories yeah. and like police and detective stories. And, I mean, they uh, were hugely, especially in Europe. I mean, I think a direct result probably out of Dirty Harry is the next year you have uh, the pilot for Kojak, which was based off the Marcus Nelson murders in New York City, very famous case. And that was a TV movie that did gangbusters and that begot a, a complete series that was very popular. Yeah. You have Columbo, which was huge too, which was predates uh, well, I mean, Dirty Harry. Well, Skin Hutch, which takes place. Yeah, and, and you have all these 70s police shows, yeah. and you have, like I said, you have Bronson doing the Death Wish Vigilante, Paul Kersey, and then he has a half a dozen to a dozen movies where he's a vigilante. So basically, like, you know, I always talk about, especially when I taught the class on horror movies, how, like, Halloween is thought as being, like, the real f- first slasher movie. Yeah. Where it's really not. Because we talked about Bob Clark's Bl- Black Christmas. But Black Christmas kind of really is, and... Texas Chainsaw Massacre, to a certain extent, has a lot of those devices. And, you know, people would argue that at, that Bay of Blood by Mario Bob is actually the first slasher movie. But people always think of Halloween as being the one because the success of Halloween is what started the craze. And so that's what Dirty Harry is for, like, this police crime yeah, genre. I mean, it might have, you know, like, Bullet might have been first. There might have been some other stuff. But it was because Dirty Harry did so well. That it just greenlit. That Every other fucking one after it. <laughs> and it gave him four sequels. I mean, you know, he, they they didn't know after the first one that it was going to be... They thought that would be it. And then they came back... And and was there really... Other than maybe Planet of the Apes, I mean, was there a movie that was from, like, the late 60s, early 70s that had that many sequels? Um, 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm not aware that there is that uh, of, of almost like a serialistic kind of a yeah. way. I don't know. Are you I mean, right? I even mean, like that many sequels today is still pretty high. Yeah, I mean, five to have, to have five. You know. I mean, over and then over. You think the first movie was 1971, the last movie was 1987, so that's over 15, almost yeah. 20 years. You're having, you're get, you're getting, and it's the same guy. It's not uh, the. Harry Callahan is not replaced by another yeah, actor. Yeah. It's each like doing Jason it. Statham. Yeah, <laughs> you know, coming in, you know, reprising. <laughs> not like as a remake, but it's just like, like they do. I mean, you could call. I guess the Bonds have done that always, yeah, but then, yeah. but then at the same time, the Bonds have come in with different actors and stuff like that, and they were based off of books. But, um, yeah, it, it, at the time, Eastwood, uh, you know, he had he done TV work uh, as Rowdy Yates on Rawhide. He went to Italy, very big gamble, did three spaghetti westerns that did very well for him a couple years later, and they came out over here. It really pushed him up. He started doing stuff. Um, he met Don Siegel, the director, who at the time uh, was a genre guy. He had started doing, like, second unit stuff. I think he did some second unit stuff for, like, uh, Casablanca. Yeah, well, he did, it's like, for Casablanca, he was, like, a montage director. Yeah. So he did, like, when you have, like, the montages of, like, looking back, and then you see, like, the war... For the ravaging Europe, Europe. Yeah, yeah. and then, you know that was all Don Siegel. Yeah, and he stuff. he's a great director who then in the fifties did the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, he did um, another great movie, Hell is for Heroes, with Steve McQueen that Harry Gardino's in. That also comes into this movie. Uh, very good guy, and he him and Eastwood started working together in the late sixties. They and this by the time they got to Dirty Harry, this was their fourth film together. They'd done Coogan's Bluff which I think Lalo uh, Schifrin has scored also. Yeah. They did The Beguiled, which Lalo Schifrin also scored for them as well. They did uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, which maybe Lalo, I think, also could have scored. And then they come on this. And Eastwood is big enough at this time where he's now looking for properties uh, uh, for himself. And he's, he's with Universal at the time. And he's floated this script, which is uh, by uh, Harry Fink. Uh, Harry Julian Fink and his wife... R.M. Fink, and uh, he sees it, he likes it, but he's doing stuff at Universal Time. It gets passed around. John Wayne passes on it. Paul Newman passes on it. Uh, Frank Sinatra, I think, almost signs on to do it, but then injures his hand. And I've heard this really, uh, I don't know if it's a, if an old wives' tale, but I think it's silly, but they're saying he was jerking off. That's and that's how I heard it. Yeah, that's <laughs> how I heard it. So I don't know. <laughs> a little too tight. But at the time, you know, you know people were kind of like, <coughs> going against Sinatra, you know, because he had that falling out with uh, what's her face from Rosemary's Baby, Obviously. you know, yeah, and then he was kind of becoming out of style. But he, because I heard another guy when I was looking to do back uh, before we watched the movie, I was looking to do some research, and I look at people on sites doing reviews, and they had this young kid who did a review for it on YouTube. So I was like, oh, I'll watch it, and he's like, this is the first movie, Dirty Harry. He's like, and I heard he says Sinatra, and he's like, well. You know, I don't know how that would have turned out because I've never heard of Sinatra acting and I don't listen to his music. And I turned him off right then. I'm like, you're an idiot. You know, yeah. Sinatra got an Oscar for a freaking uh, um, uh, From Here to Eternity. He was nominated yeah. for Me with the Golden Arm. So, Well, I mean, it would have definitely been because I mean, by then, by 71, I mean, Sinatra, Sinatra was no spring chicken. No, but he, he'd been doing <clears throat> these serious movies. He did The Maturity Candidate, which was huge. He yeah. did Tony Rome, like I said, in 68, which was a New York City cop movie with Robert Duvall and Jacqueline Bissett, two people who were in Bullet the same yeah. year in San Francisco in 68, <laughs> which is funny. So it's like them on... And that was a very kind of touchy... was about gays and, and gays they, 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 who used to hang out like in the uh, tractor truck, tractor trailers yeah. on the West Side Highway by the docks. It was very like seedy material. So Sinatra was signed on. He uh, hurt his hand. He had to pass. It came <laughs> back into Eastwood's lap. 
uh, Universal kind of loaned him out to uh, Warner Brothers. He had not had this big relationship with Warner's yet. This was his first movie with Warner's, uh, and he invented a company called Malpaso, which he named off of a creek in his in his in Carmel where he lives. There's a creek in the back called the Malpaso. It's Spanish for I forget what it's Spanish for. So he named his company off of that. So then he was able to bring people on. He liked. So he brought on. He loves Lalo Schifrin. So he's like, yeah. okay, I'll t- go bring Lalo. He got gets Don Siegel because he's a good guy. So and who? Uh, I'm sorry, you probably already said this. What was? The, is this the first thing he did with Don Siegel? No, this is but by the time the fourth movie he's done with Don Siegel. Dirty Harry. Yeah, he okay. did 68. He did Coogan's Bluff. He did. Um, 70, he did uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Okay. 70, I think early 71, he did The Beguiled. Okay. And well, that was before that. Yeah, and then uh, he'd worked with Lalo a number of times, and then he'd also, Lalo worked with Eastwood on Kelly's Heroes, which yeah, is a different yeah. movie, did the soundtrack. So he's worked with these people a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, his, I mean, this relationship is, you know, one of the great director. Well, uh, and it's also interesting to say, to think, like, that Eastwood's persona, you know, kind of really starts under the tutelage of Leone. Yeah. And so he goes from, like, Leone to this. Well, this... <laughs> to not, not to this movie, but to, like, this relationship of being a driver. I mean, he's being kind of coached. I mean, it's like, I don't know, it's like a dream come true. Yeah, it's like the, by I mean, the like great... He's, he's had, like... You know, mentors as uh, in in the guise of directors. It's like having being work working with some like really fucking top notch guys. Yeah, uh, he at the time this being <laughs> their fourth movie together, he uh, he just finished or was still working on a, a mo- his directorial debut play uh, Misty for Me, which is a really good thriller. Which I which they which I never into. noticed until this viewing that there's a little. Oh, you never saw that. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. another thing for the widescreen that Don Siegel, as a joke, put at the beginning when when there's the holdup scene. Don Siegel puts on the marquee, plays yeah, he wa- He's walking through the street during like the big famous scene of the you know the bank robbery that he's come to foil, and there's a movie theater kind of in the background, like down a street, not yeah. even on the street he's walking on, but like down the avenue, and on the marquee it says "Play Misty for me." Uh, <clears throat> he. At the time, was a little hesitant when he was directing Play Misty for me. So he said to Don Siegel, hey, can I cast you as a bartender in my movie? He said, sure. And when he got to set, he actually did it as insurance. Just if he had any questions, he can just refer to Siegel. So Siegel was on set with him. And Siegel actually cameos in the remake of Invasion of the Body yeah. Snatchers. And then they, did, they ended up doing one more movie together. They did um, Escape from Alcatraz, um, 1979, I think. And then uh, I think Siegel died a couple years later. And then Eastwood went on to pay tribute to him in Unforgiven. He says this movie's dedicated to my friend Don Siegel. So you're right. So he had this great relationship, and people forget that. And if you think of working relationships where people will bring up, say, like John Ford and John Wayne, yeah. De Niro and Scorsese, uh, Denzel Washington, Spike Lee, uh, Walter, uh, John Huston, not Walter, John Huston and Humphrey Bogart. Bogart you could say yeah. this also, Eastwood and Siegel, because yeah. you know, Siegel put out a lot of these movies that made – Eastwood, like you know, solidified his reputation as a as a badass, and well, not this just, being the not just like one. his reputation, but you can tell that you know, there's sometimes you have actors. I mean, I think most actors probably would like to direct, and you know, only a few of them actually end up doing it. But it seems like or the, can do it. I guess yeah. also, they everyone seems to want to try, and maybe yeah. they do, but then it's like, eh. But it just seems like. 
you know, the success that he's had as a director, and I particularly am not a huge fan of, of him as a director. I don't, you know, I don't, like, hate his movies or anything, but you could just tell, like, that relationship. And then probably also the relationship with Loni, uh, Leone, but this relationship specifically was probably a really big driving force yeah. of him being a talented director, maybe even his wanting to pursue it. Uh, well, he actually... Uh, we'll get to a little later. He directed a scene in this movie, which is, I think, this movie came out before Play Misty for me, so this was his directorial debut on a in a major motion picture. He directs this 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 the jumper scene. Yeah. Uh, Eastwood did. So, um, also, Eastwood uh, surrounds himself with very good co-stars in this movie as well. You have John Vernon, who plays the mayor, who I guess people know from... Um, uh, Animal House, the best as the team. <laughs> yeah. You know, he his first movie is a uh, uh, great movie with, um, what's his name? Uh, Lee Marvin, uh, Point Blank. Uh, you have Harry Gordino, who I said was also in another uh, Hell is for Heroes, uh, Don Siegel movie. Uh, you have John Larch, who he just worked with as the police detective in Play Misty for Me. So those, he plays the chief, Gordino plays his, his captain. Uh, and then you have uh, a newcomer, Remy Saloni, who people know now, Santoni, I think he is. He, people know him from Cobra, from and, Cobra and people yeah. also know him from Seinfeld. Yeah, he plays Poppy, Poppy on Seinfeld. Uh, and then rounding out, you were supposed, they were supposed to cast, I guess if we play our what-if game again, uh, they were supposed to cast uh, Audrey Murphy, uh, Audie Murphy, as uh, Scorpio, but he ended up dying in a plane crash the same year, 1971. He was basically cast as Scorpio. So they get this young New York actor, Andy Robinson, who uh, Siegel was kind of hesitant to cast because he thought he was too nice and too charming and too, too good-looking, which ended up, I think, completely working yeah, yeah. For, for this part. And um, a lot of people don't know, realize either is the script was based, originally based in New York. And then at the time, Eastwood had just done Coogan's Bluff in New York, which I think is the only New York movie he's ever done. Uh, th- that he stars in. Uh, Siegel had done a bunch of things in New York, so they were looking for another city that was less photographed. They considered Seattle. They went up and actually, I think, mapped out a lot of shooting locations for Seattle. And then I think they, what happened was they were both independently one Sunday watching a football game, and this Kizar Stadium, was this antique old stadium, football stadium was on, and it was the last game. And they were like, that would be a great set piece in our movie, and we, yeah. can, you know, we can use that before they knock the shit down. So they both called each other up. and like, hey, let's just put it in san francisco you yeah. know well i mean it's a beautiful city yeah and all this stuff from the rooftops i mean you really it's it's weird because th- then this becomes a source this movie also dirty hair could be our most controversial for us in saturday night movie sleepovers to date because of the backlash it got it became so popular because it was controversial for good and bad reasons people called it fascist people called it right wing people called it this and that and the other thing and uh in particular there was a uh a uh, film critic Pauline Kael, who just tore it apart. She she leaned left and she called it fascist. He he was very right wing. And one of his her complaints was it doesn't uh, really show San Francisco in a positive light. And it's like you think about nowadays. Can, can you imagine someone making that about New York City? Well, you know you're, you're you're you know. So it's a lot of the controversy is really weird here uh, that that this movie got. But they end up putting it in San Francisco, and I guess to to sum up the movie in a nutshell, it's just about he's a cop. Uh, you have a crazy killer on the loose who's a sniper killing people randomly, and he's got to stop him. And I guess that's really it. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's it. I mean, he's a guy who is alone, 
who is this? The uh, the killer Callahan. or Callahan? Yeah. Uh, he seems like he's a guy that doesn't really have. Doesn't seem like he has much to live for. I so it seems like he is willing to take risk or doesn't have the regard for like his own personal being as much as probably a lot of other detectives. So, and it ends up uh, being a detriment to his partners. (laughs) It's weird. uh, uh, For for this uh, cast, uh, uh, Blake and I both read the the novelization. We both went out and purchased the Dirty Harry novelization because we thought maybe there'd be some cool backstory because another thing that's really good, I guess to throw it out there, a lot of people have to realize when watching this movie that the whole movie from beginning to end is completely cliched. <coughs> yeah. But it's not the movie's fault. The yeah. movie's cliched because at the time it came out, it was so groundbreaking, I guess, paving new ground that nowadays people have stolen like everything yeah, from it. Yeah, it created the, like, the template. that Yeah, it created all these devices and this, this construct of this kind of story. And then everything got caught. Like, I remember seeing like uh, a screening of... Halloween at the Museum of the Moving Image. And people just kind of like laughed through it because it has become so cliched that it's almost comical. Yeah, people can't but divorce you themselves have to from that. Figure, you have to try to put yourself in the mindset of like you hadn't seen this before when you watched it. So that I think uh, we can get into later with is, is why I think some of the criticism of it doesn't work. You know, you, you're kind of shortchanging the movie when you criticize it for leaning politically certain ways. Uh, when this movie came out, like my father saw it on opening night, there were, it was like Psycho. There was there was lines around the block. People love this freaking movie, and it was it took the police procedural movie and it did things with it that people had never seen. I mean, the violence and the and what I was saying before about the conceit that this movie's th- slow, so cliched. You wouldn't really have like Die Hard or Lethal Weapon or maybe the Arnold Schwarzenegger action movies of the 80s. But you take Lethal Weapon, like three-fourths of Lethal Weapon is just like taking scenes from this movie. Yeah. And what's interesting, you know, like, you know, we're going to give you a new partner. You know, even there's that, that even uh, jumped the shark where there was like a Burt Reynolds movie where his the new partner was his dog or even the, the canine <laughs> with um, Jim Belushi. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? But uh, when this movie starts going, what I love about it, there's no exposition. You don't know anything about Eastwood, his character. You don't, you don't have yeah, that yeah. Clump, cumbersome, like, they take a moment for him to do this or that. He puts a gun in his mouth, and he's crying watching the yeah, Three Stooges. Yeah. None what, of that. What you learn, you learn throughout the movie through... Like, just offhanded... Pretty well-disguised uh, you know, exposition yeah. in terms of dialogue. I mean, it, it is clearly there just to tell, just to give us an insight into him slightly, but it's not as overt as happens now. Like sometimes I watch a movie and I'll say to you know whoever I'm watching it with, I was like, you know, they should just flash exposition on the screen as, <laughs> as they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> but this is pretty well handled in that way. I mean, you do learn, and of course, as always, we're going to spoil the fuck out of this. Movie. Yeah, so spoiler alert: that his wife is dead. Yeah. And his, uh, what I've learned from the novelization, reading the novelization, which is really cool, uh, up until uh, three weeks prior, he had a partner named um, Lucky Sam Fleming. It was his partner for five years. And uh, three weeks pri- prior, they were 
doing something and his partner got shot and his partner's in the hospital. Yeah. The, the name Fleming in the, mo- uh, in the book turned, or the script turned into Dietrich uh, when Eastwood referenced him. Dietrich's still in the hospital, the bullet to his gut, and Fanducci's dead. And then they referenced a third partner that was a real green rookie that Eastwood only had for a day, and he died. And what you learn from the, also from the book, his, his full name is Harry Francis Callahan. He's an ex-Marine, which they go into in Magnum Force, the sequel to this movie. Uh, they describe him. He's a, 19, he's a 19-year veteran on the force. Uh, he's lean and sa- a lean and savage wolf is how they describe him in the novelization. And it's interesting because the novelization, it's kind of still working off, I think, one of the scripts of maybe like Frank Sinatra in mind or somebody because yeah. he's got a lot of more dialogue or a certain amount. I think it's before Eastwood kind of took it and said, okay, I'm not, I wouldn't say this. I want to give this to this person to say. So that, that's kind of dispersed yeah. among people. I mean, and we, we have a whole sidecast on podwits.com about talking about novelization. And photo novels. So. And, and photo novels. So there's, a, there's more about like the process of that. But basically most of these are based on earlier drafts of the script and then kind of ad- adapted from those. Because they want to get it out so that it's on the newsstand. Yeah, it's, it's a tie. Yeah, before, probably before the movie's out, like you know, a month or so before. So we learned that about uh, Eastwood and, um, or Callahan. And his wife, we learn uh, later in the movie, uh, which they talk about in the novelization, died shortly after they were married. And they talk about it. They, they say the conceit in there, I guess maybe the, it's like the th- last third act of the movie he just he, he kind of mentions it yeah. but it puts you, you find out that it puts him in a mindset the character because he has such an interesting arc the character where he's just he doesn't deal with bullshit well you know and it's interesting because a lot of people protested it saying it's a fascist movie it's he's a pig or he's he's right wing but Eastwood's character is kind of rebelling against the same thing that the people are bitching about it going against he is rebelling against the bureaucracy he is the one they 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 try to humanize it. They call him Dirty Harry through the movie. You learn is because he does the shit that people don't want to deal with, and the day to day of a cop seeing this horror kind of puts them in this kind of peace of mind where they look at the world differently. They're kind of hard boiled or they're shell shocked or however you want to say it. So it's interesting when you have you know they make references to like in the movie about you know he's you know his he's very he's wearing just a generic suit he got from Sears or his his pants cost only twenty nine fifty, but he doesn't want the, the doctor to take cut him off because he, he wants to wear him. He's bitching about OT. Uh, his, his, his captain, Harry Gordino, even tells him to get a haircut. And he's like, I, I don't have time to get a haircut because I've, I've been doing all, you know, pulling all this OT and not getting paid for it. So it's like he's, he's kind of almost being described as, you know, like he's like a long hair and he, and he doesn't like the bureaucracy either. And this in the series of Dirty Hair movies is the only time where the bureaucracy isn't overtly corrupt as in the other movies which is interesting yeah, yeah. as they go on but they certainly are somewhat like enablers and yeah it's not corrupt but there are flaws yeah and 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 he sees that and it just annoys him where he just wants to get it done and he's like why which i guess i mean it's hard to kind of put a perspective on it you know being guys that were not alive when this movie was made um you know, I guess like the Miranda rights were relatively new. Yeah, in the late when it came out in so the late '60s, there was a there was this uh, case. This guy named Ernesto Miranda. He had been taken in by police, and I think he had raped a woman. And in the interrogation, uh, wh- however long it took, twelve hours in this interrogation, he admitted to killing a couple people. Say, and when they go to court, the lawyers use this and say, you know, he. His rights were violated, da, 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 da. 
And he walked from that. And then I guess as a comeuppance to him, he went to jail for something else and was killed in jail like two weeks later, Ernesto Miranda. But because of that, they then made these Miranda rights. And this was rulings where they wanted to make sure that the, 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 the suspect, innocent until proven guilty, had certain rights that the cops couldn't violate. But in the late 60s, in that climate uh, where people were revolting against the man and the cops were now looking, looked at as pigs yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, the yeah. Well, there was a lot of, you know, mistrust yeah. against the establishment. I mean, and, and I, I guess for a certain amount, there was probably for, for, for very concrete and justifiable reasons to yeah. a certain extent, you know, with racism and stuff like that. But cops certainly got a, a bad brunt of it. And coming out of the, the, the 60s, the, the peace love era, people were kind of like, well, you know, you're almost looking too much for the suspect's rights as uh, differently than the victim's rights. And, and this is something that Harry Callahan certainly takes up where he, yeah, yeah. he doesn't care about the, 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 the suspect's rights. He's more cared about the victim. And he mentions that quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, his arc in this movie where he becomes, you know, he just loses it. And it's interesting, it's unique in, I guess, a police genre picture where as crazier as the, the, the psychopath in this movie gets, the crazier the cop is brought to his breaking point. And they become foils in the movie. They're like um, gopper, go, uh, doppelgangers of the two of them, yeah. uh, of, of their relationship and how similar that he is. I mean, even to the trailer, the, if you watch the original trailer for this movie, they start off like, we're gonna, this is a story about a couple of killers. Yeah, yeah. One's a maniac, one has a badge. So they yeah, can see yeah. that in, in the trailer that, yeah, he's a like, killer. Even the poster, it's like Dirty Harry. Yeah. And the whatever. Yeah, he mani- doesn't, you know, they, they don't want to sign him. killer. You know. Harry's the one with the badge. Yeah, they don't assign him to, to cases. They let him loose. You know, so it's like, but he's kind of like, another interesting thing is this was, this solidified Eastwood outside of the Western genre, which you could say was maybe kind of flagging or flagging in America. And yeah. it, it had a jump with Sergio Leone and then into the 70s with Eastwood and other people doing Westerns. But yeah. but this is also, in a lot of ways, of a, Western. a modern Western. Yeah, I mean, and, it, and it, there's so many nods to that. If you want to start getting into, like, film theory here. He's the lone gunfighter. Yeah, he's the sheriff, and he's like the good sheriff in a bad town. And so much so you see, like, in movies like, say, High Noon with Gary Cooper, where it's like, you know... Uh, people don't want the sheriff or that guy until shit goes down yeah, and then yeah. they want him and then after that they kind of just push him away yeah, and they get like rid of him. There's always like that gunfighter that needs to leave because there's no place for him yeah. after he's done his job. And, it, and that's how Eastwood is in this movie. And there's a lot of nods to the Western in this where like at the beginning of the movie uh, when he foils the bank robbery you know, he even says he doesn't want to get involved. He's eating his lunch, and he's like, let's, let's just hope till the cavalry arrives. The cavalry yeah. doesn't arrive. He goes, he foils the robbery. And by the way, that scene is the only scene that wasn't shot in San Francisco. That was shot on a back lot um, yeah. at the time. And kinda I think looks, it's kind it of... It kind of looks like Yeah, it, it looks like a very much like a Scar- Starsky and Hutch 70s back lot. Um, and then even w- with him toying with the guy, there's almost a mutual respect there because a bank robbery is something going back to, like, the old days that was like a, you know, a Western convention. So yeah, yeah. he's kind of like, you know, you play your role, I play mine, you lost. And there's kind of like a, a weird kind of uh, uh, understanding between, because uh, the guy in it, Albert Popwell, who ends up being in, he plays, he cameos in every other Dirty Harry movie except the Deadpool because I think he passed away before the Deadpool. But he, uh, he I, I guess it, he must have been friends with Eastwood because he yeah, shows yeah. up in every one. Uh, you know, I he gets shot. Know. Yeah, I got to know. <laughs> And it's funny because Eastwood gives his, 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 his Do You Feel Lucky, the very, very uh, famous 
uh, speech, kind of like just you know he's smiling, and he's yeah, just yeah. it's like his spiel he says. So it's hey, like that's, uh, that's what I was thinking about when when, when we watched it <laughs> tonight. It was like in my head I was like I just I would love to, is this something that he's like refined in in the field or I could just imagine like him like sitting on his bed and he's like that's a pretty cool thing to say <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like writing he's like no. Uh, do you feel lucky? Yeah, that that'll work. You know, and then <laughs> you could direct. You can credit that. John Milius takes credit for that. He says he did a revision of the script and he helped. He he injected the forty four magnum into the script. He injected that. He says, but it, because I mean, at first you like, you just said, and then that line like verbatim comes later. That's why I always th- I thought it was just kind of funny to to picture like him <laughs> in bed, just like coming like, up with it and like ref- in the shower, like ref- oh, <laughs> refining it. Because it's clearly something that he says a lot. He needs to say it a certain way, and, and, and Callahan has to say the spiel. And if you look at the novelization, it's weird because he says, uh, was it five or six? Regulations say five. Hammered down on an empty uh, chamber he's talking about in his revolver. Uh, n- uh, only not all of us go by the book. So it's a little more... He's, so it's, it's a, I like how Eastwood kind of brought it down and kind of refined it a little more because he's saying, like, you know, the force tells you only keep five in your ammo, even though it has a capacity for six. Do I have five or do I have six in here? And then on top of it, have I shot them all off? <laughs> yeah. It's like so it's, it's a little another more. S- another step of confusion. Yeah. With the guys, like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, I, you lost me. <laughs> you lost me. regulation. I know. What are you talking about? <laughs> what a hammer to the floor. Are we talking about smoking the bandit? So it's, so, but, but my point is for that scene is there is kind of like a, it's, you know, when we talk about film, it's like you see his day to day. You know, he, even though he has this shitty life, he has no purpose. He's kind of okay with it. Yeah. It's, just, it's just kind of like, he he's like, diner, he gets a hot no, dog. he gets a shitty hot, yeah, he gets a shitty hot dog. And the guy even says, what do you want, the regular lunch or regular dinner? He's like, well, what is it matter? I get the same thing. So what's it matter? Yeah. You know, the movie starts off um, very interesting enough with, um, uh, with the of police badges and there's a montage of all the of the people who have fallen uh for f- in San Francisco and then it g- goes from there into uh you see the sniper yeah in an extreme close up the uh that the bells at the beginning are the only thing that is not done by Lalo Schifrin it's a song called Oh God, our help in ages past so and it was from like a library and then they mix it into Lalo's yeah, score yeah. and the style of the movie uh how it's shot by um Surtees, uh, I think it's Bruce Surtees, uh, that was the uh, DP, son of the great Robert Surtees, and Eastwood ended up using him a lot as a DP. It's shot very much like a documentary. A lot of it is used. <laughs> uh, what I love about it, the, almost all the movies either played in long shots or mediums. Yeah, you yeah. hardly get close-ups, and when you do, it's for a reason. You know, and they're not like the overt, like Leone close-ups where you're like up the guy's nose, which there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. But it's very much done as a documentary. There, there is a lot of the. Uh, you're right. That's one thing I definitely noted in this viewing was like it does. There's a lot of it that does feel very real, very documentary. Like when he, just like walking into like, the courthouse, or you know, there's just certain things that they're not. It's not shot in like, uh, in like a standard polished Hollywood way. No. And that's not to say that there's not like beautiful shot compositions throughout the movie and stuff. But there are large chunks of this movie that feel that do feel more documentary than the narrative. And that's something that like you know, uh Friedkin, you know, kind of followed through because he was a documentary filmmaker 
and going into like French connection and stuff. Seventies becomes a kind of like a hotbed of this idea of like creating more of a realistic yeah. look. There was that movement, like, gr- like grit and um, feel to cinema. You know who did that a lot too was what's his face, the actor who Cassavetes. Yeah, you know John Cassavetes did that a lot, where he would you know make a movie, a very commercial movie, and then go make a really really. But low that's not even work. to say like people might mis- mistake this as like this this. You know, the craze of, like, the last 10 years or so, like, this sh- handheld shaky bullshit no, is no. being feeling more energetic and more real. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about... <laughs> no, it's like a fly on the wall. Yeah. You know, you're it's like, just, it's like you're an observer of the scene. It's not like handheld you know? trying to follow the action. It's more of, like, you're. it's there and you're observing yeah. some what's happening instead of being having it be forced. And it's interesting you. that a lot of it is done, like, you'll do a whole scene in a long shot. Yeah. And there's there's movement where they cross or they you know come um, to the forefront of the frame, the background, and they maybe won't even cut to a medium or close up. And it's interesting. And it also kind of, which I really loved about it from a young age, is it, it gives San Francisco, San Francisco is almost a character in the yeah, movie. Yeah, very much so. You know, which I like, and I kind of stole for an idea that I'm doing a book that maybe you might read one day. Um, and it's it's weird. You have Scorpio on the roof and. Immediately at the beginning of the movie, he he's, he he kills a woman who's who's in a pool across the street, and I think that shocked people because suddenly people realized you didn't need to have a killer go up to you yeah, yeah. and stab you or shoot you. And this story had very based on at the time the Zodiac killings, which uh, David Fincher did the movie some years ago, yeah. and that was very very real still in people's minds. The Zodiac killer was a guy who again I guess. Uh, Coincidentally, in San Francisco, was killing people randomly, uh, you know, with the Zodiac. So I guess that's why they called the character Scorpio. And yeah, yeah. Um, also, you had like Manson, you had the three, the, the the spree killers of the time. So it was very much in people's realm. Yeah, that this you had I, you're these. right. But as like with this idea of like the sniper. I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah, you don't know. Because you didn't even, you didn't even, <laughs> there was not even any warning. Like you just got killed. Like you're walking down the street you, or you're in, swimming in your in your swimming pool feeling like you're secure that nobody's even watching you and he's there like four blocks away out of building and just and, he, and the next thing you know you're like face down <laughs> like bleeding in the pool just like bleeding to death um and it's 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 a it's a weird idea and also i think i guess getting into the controversy people were upset about the level of violence in the movie and and certain acts that were done in the movie and I think it's it's a cheap way out to go that argument when you look at it like well it's one of the first pictures to show like a psychopath not the first but it's one of the first like you take Alan Arkin from Wait Until Dark Harry Rote Jr. where it's like people have never seen a psychopath just like a normal person you know and then and he doesn't have a motive where in this movie Scorpio's motive is just to kill and then like you know I think blackmail or ransom is like secondary and and also from the outset he's not just he he kills anybody he kills women he, you know we go on to see he'll kill children he kills children he kills so nobody is is safe yeah. from him and from the outset eastwood kind of figures that out and uh you know he investigates the 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 the, the first crime and then they get a uh, a letter from him they find eastwood finds uh at the scene of the, of the sniper robbery. And it's cool in the book, which I think is really cool, is that it originally was supposed to be a, uh, 
a letter that was made out of uh, magazine clippings. He, he clipped it all together, and it's very eerie. But they went the other route for the movie where they had it written, and then they wanted to make him uneducated, so they made him like have a lot of crossing out and misspelled words and all that, which I think is quite as effective as well. And then, you know, they, they, they want to try to deal with it quickly. They don't know what to do with, with, the, with the sniper. They have to try to figure out how yeah. to contain him. Contain well, this him. idea of, like, the letter... You know, goes back to Jack, like Jack the Ripper. Like, yeah. I wonder, like, really, what is that really? I wonder. I just I, not that this has to do with the movie, but just out of curiosity. Like, I wonder if, like, that's really kind of where it starts. Well, it must be. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's another thing about, like, I guess, because at the time people didn't know what serial killers were. I don't think the term a serial killer came out until like the, maybe the late eighties. Yeah. You're like they call them spree killers or pattern killers or something like that. So that was also very new for people to see, like, what do you mean there's one person like Ted Bundy who goes and kills systematically yeah, yeah. and might have a, a pattern. Um, so people didn't see that, and those kind of killers need the attention. And very much like in real life, like the BTK killer, that guy in Wichita, he had stopped killing like 20 years ago, and he was bored with his daily life. And a lot of times that's what happened with serial killers. Half of them aren't caught because they either die or they just stop killing and move away. Yeah, yeah. So to take someone like the BTK killer, he got himself caught because he, he after 20 years, like sent photocopies of the victim's licenses that he took his trophies to the police. Like, I'm still out here. And that's almost what Scorpios does in the movie. Like, he needs the attention. So even though halfway through the movie they know who he is, He's still doing it. Like, he needs that, yeah, you know, yeah. like, they're not going to find him. It's really weird. So, the movie unravels. Eastwood gets a new partner, which is very cliched again. You're getting a new partner. And, you know, and then, you know, they think Dirty Harry, he's a racist. But it's just a joke because he's not. He's just, he's kind of much, a, he's like a no bullshit yeah, guy. There's a big, there's the big joke that he, he's not racist because he hates everybody. Everybody, you know. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know, I'm, I'm very much like that. You know, it's just like you just, he, he doesn't like people who try to be smarter than him or this, that, or over talk him. And, the, you know, um, his new partner, uh, Chico, is a college boy. And he's like, oh, you're a college guy, you know. It, uh, he suggests getting uh, uh, Giorgio, which is very funny because that's actually the actor is John Mitchum, Robert Mitchum's brother. I don't think I've seen him in any other movie, but he, he uh, reprises his role as DiGiorgio, DiGiorgio in Magnum Force, and then he's ultimately killed in the third movie, The Enforcer. Um, but they give, they give him a newbie. They want him to give a new recruit. And I don't know if it's maybe they're trying to be PC, but they give him a Hispanic, which I don't think is here or there. I don't think Eastwood or Harry Callahan's, you know, I don't want to be with a, with a Hispanic. It's more I don't want a new partner because, like yeah, you said. Yeah, it's weird that that's even an issue. You know, he just, the movie. I, I think he just doesn't want to deal with... Because it doesn't seem like that's... I definitely never, never for a second does it come across that he has an objection to the fact that he's Hispanic. But it's, it, to me, it's weird because that there's no objection to it. Like, why is it even brought up? Well, because people, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things where, like, you know, if, if the movie leans to a right, it's inherently racist or that. It's, 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 it's silly. But, um... You know, the, the novelization also gives us a little more uh, backstory as well, where uh, Eastwood, uh, like I said, he was an ex-Marine, and they also said that he, he grew up in uh, uh, Pondero Hill, Pontrero Hill, I guess it's called the hill in San Francisco, with the, um, the black doctor at the beginning who helps, who heals him up, because he gets buckshot in that bank se- sequence, which is, plays more in the, in the story, in the book, where it, that hurts him a little more in the... In the uh, yeah, and that's also the first inkling that we find out that He's not married, and that he once was married. Yeah. We don't find out yet why he's not married anymore, but he's like, you know. Your wife so can just put something, oh, I'm sorry. 
It's like, yeah, you, sh- you, sh- you should <laughs> be, you son of a asshole. Uh, <laughs> and it's also interesting, uh, on a completely different note, is that the satire that comes out in this movie, which is very Eastwood, but that ends up becoming a thing in itself in these kind of movies where you have the, the, the yeah. character giving these sarcastic or satiristic lines that yeah, are yeah. very much like, ha, 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 you know, but it was so much of a, of a term of Eastwood at the time. Yeah. So, you, so this is produced by Eastwood? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I know we already went over that, but I'm just trying to get a sense because there's a lot of credit being given to, <laughs> to Eastwood in terms of casting and and uh, well, I, I think rewrites you know, of the movie. I think he had a, a certain say over it. You know, he's one of these guys where you know he he um, you know had final say on certain things. Like, and so he brought in people he liked, he worked well with. But other than, I mean, I mean, but this is like the really other than maybe the Leone movies. I mean, this is the movie that really yeah, this made him like makes a, like him a, 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 a uber. So you think he had like really that much power before the success of this movie? No, but I I think he he brought this this project to them. Yeah. So that's why he had the power because it was his. You know, he's like this this I think this could do my career well and yeah, I think yeah. I can so I think him helming the project and bringing it to like these hands that's where he got the power as opposed to him having you know because he'd done so well he was still yeah, yeah. I think a moderately you know uh, famous actor you know who had a big stint in those westerns um, so then as you get into the movie we get you know Scorpio's character in the next scene then we see Scorpio he's he's uh, he he asked them to to, uh, to 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 answer his his ransom warning. He wants two hundred thousand dollars in cash, or he's going to kill a a black person or or a, a priest. Uh, let me let us let me know the next day in the want ads. Then you know they reply like we need time. So he's already looking to kill somebody else. Well, I think I mean look in a nutshell. Basically, the whole story. What I find interesting about it is like yes, if you really analyze it and you want to put this movie in like a three act structure, you can. Yeah. But I don't feel like really structurally it is like a traditional three-act kind of drama. Um, Because really you could break the first hour into kind of three acts. Like you could make one movie out of the first hour of this movie. Yeah. Which is basically the killer and uh, Harry's kind of obsession begins with catching him. And feeling the obstacle of bureaucracy, and like the uh, the the notion of like the thought of a ransom, and like why are we even entertaining this? Like why are we like this guy needs to be stopped? Yeah. Like, and it's, he's, he seems like the only one that has then that mindset. The first half, the first half of the movie, the, the, that 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 first hour ends with really where a lot of movies would end completely, which is that he's caught. Yeah. And it's like, it's that big kind of set piece that we're talking about at the football stadium. And we find out that, one, Scorpio's a pussy. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, just like, first of all, like, I don't know if you could have got a better performance out of anybody in this part. Uh, Andy Robinson. Yeah, yeah. He's just so good. Well, like, too good in that, like, it probably gave him a really hard time being anything else in a movie after in yeah. terms of like typecasting. Yeah, he's 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 he it's interesting his like his voice he uses. Yeah. Where he's very much he can have the innocent childlike voice or the eager g- giddiness like the, the scene when he he beats up Eastwood or Harry Callahan he's very like, you know, and then when he's a complete pussy 
Or to the part where he's like talking to the kids at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's very terrifying how he just, he's a complete nutcase. But this is also the scene in the, in the stadium is also we get the notion of where this movie's gonna go. Which is, we, we start with the notion of that he knows his rights. Yeah. He's, 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 it's interesting. We have to also delineate that he is a marksman. Because it's not like he just went and bought a sniper rifle. And, you know, he, he's actually able to execute these shots at a great distance. Yeah. So he has some sort of training. He must be well-read, even though they try to say he isn't with the scribbles on the paper, the ransom note. But he knows his rights. Yeah, he, he's like, I want a lawyer and all that. And, and, and it's interesting. There's a clock. So as the movie goes, you know, he, he, starts, he starts systematically trying. He doesn't care. He's going to kill anyway. He's not, he, doesn't, yeah. he doesn't matter. And it's interesting to bring, let's, I guess, start talking about Lalo. Schiffer and bring his score into it. You have the the opening of the movie. You have like the the the, the movie's theme, which is like uh, very much like you know look, it's the what's going on with Eastwood. Eastwood walks and you know and it's the credits. Yeah. And then uh, you have Scorpio's theme, and, and it's very much like um, the idea of Scorpio. You know, maybe doesn't really listen to music, or whatever. These are the, there's a very in his theme. There's a very ghostly like female voice, like almost like a like a. Uh, an angelic voice singing, and that's like the voices in his head. Yeah, and uh, you get a feeling for the anxiety with the beat in the bass. You know, dun 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 dun. dun you know, it's, so it's like it yeah. racks up the tension very Which, well. Uh, Carpenter says that that score, that theme, is very much an influence on Assault on Precinct 13's the uh, score. Lalo's. Well, the, yeah. it's it's interesting because Lalo to talk about his his. Uh, his score for a second particularly was cited by um, Time Magazine, LA Weekly, Variety, and the New Yorker that, that it's like, I don't know, they call it the... the well, I, I mean, I would say, I mean, for all those people that are not necessarily... Uh, score lovers. Yeah, like, like Lalo Schifrin, you know, most famous for the Mission Impossible theme. Yeah, he, which he wrote, yeah, that's his. Um, and then, of course, this is a big score for him. Uh, he did Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon is one of my favorite scores yeah. of his. He did the Rush Hour movies more recently. Yeah. He shows up doing the weirdest stuff, westerns to all kinds of stuff. But he's kind of like a uh, um, like a, a jazz piano player, um, Bossa Nova. You and I saw him live. Yeah, we saw him with the Blue Note. 2002 or three, uh, when he was um, doing stuff. And it's interesting to, to compare his score of Bullet, which is very much jazz, uh, versus this, where in Bullet, it's jazzy. It's trying to show San Francisco of what's going on there. It's you know, it's very hip and happening, and the 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 the, the, the world there. And then with Dirty Harry, the theme here is 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 very much like uh, reactionary. It's the sadness, and you don't even hear Dirty Harry has a theme that doesn't come out until the end of the second act. Maybe if you want to call an act structure, when they find uh, when they find the body of the girl that he ends up kidnapping. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then at the end, it plays at the very end in the end credits when he walks away, Eastwood. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it, it's, I think it's one of my favorite scores, I think. Yeah, it, it, I it mean, it's, re- it's a great score. I mean, Lalo Schifrin is a definitely would be on any list of, like, best film com- music composers of all time. And this would definitely probably, in the article that you would read citing greatest composer of all time, this would be one of the scores mentioned you know as being why it's it's a it's a great score into the 70s this is the start of he gets starts to get on top of like this little jazz and jazz fusion aspect it starts to bring in like this funk aspect into his scores which be kind of becomes a signature i think he also wrote like the theme to starsky and hutch um 
So, I mean, Lalo Schifrin is no joke when it comes to... Uh, yeah, and, and he injects that. The score helps in, enable the, the movie, pushes it along, and you kind of get into Scorpio's world that way where yeah, he's just yeah. this, this this lunatic. And um, as the movie goes on, uh, they, 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 they try to pin him down. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of what I was trying to get at. So we get this set piece. He knows his rights. There has been... Um, a girl has a fourteen-year-old girl has been kidnapped, and he's saying, "I want the ransom." She's buried alive. She has X amount of hours. Of yeah, she's going to be left. dead by three a.m. If you don't give me the money, she's going to die. If you give me the money, I'll tell you where she's buried. You can save her. And he's already he and with the note he gives a shoebox with her tooth, which yeah. was pulled out with a pair of pliers and like a, a bra, and a bra and some hair. And he gives hair. a description like she's got nice tits and you know, like blah, blah, blah. a mole on the inside of her leg. Or yeah. Something. So that's where that's why I'm saying like the structure becomes, you know, it's an odd kind of structure because this in any other movie would be the story. Yeah. Like this would be like in act the top of act two we would this find timeline. we find out that we have a clock that we need to finish that yeah. like we have x amount of hours to catch this guy and then act two is about finding him and then as we go into the into the third act it's like that's when the chase and stuff we get closer so this is all happening and it's the first half of the movie <laughs> you yeah. know so so it ends with uh well eastwood and well, callahan admits it's almost he doesn't take it seriously until they prior to this they corner him up on a building because they 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 lure him to, to to this position where he's they think he's going to go against go for a priest. They try to take him out with a high powered rifle. He has a machine gun. There's a big fight. Uh, it's it's quite eerie uh, sequence. And then uh, Scorpio is able to get away and he kills a cop. And in the novelization, that really. It's it's almost Harry's fault. He feels like that that this cop got killed, and then the next scene when he finds out, he's like, you know, you you Scorpio says you bastard did this yourself. You've made me go kidnap this girl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Harry says right to them, you know she's dead, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You know he knows, but nobody else wants to admit that. And even though it's interesting, even though his personality, he knows she's dead. He's still gonna play this thing out to the end. Yeah. You know, he's gonna do it by the book, how the mayor wants, how everybody wants. So we have this clock get started, but he, <laughs> which I think is kind of like the funny part of it is like, do you want to be the guy to make the drop? Yes. No funny business now, <laughs> Harry. Like yeah, they're giving, it's like giving like a dog the job of like watching a pizza or something like you guard the food. It's sitting right here, but don't eat any of it. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, like you're giving like the most important job. And your instructions are, like, don't do what Harry Callahan is destined to do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I don't believe. Like, I you know that. Harry isn't going to. I don't think Harry's trying to go out there. He, I think he's, he's going to play it by the book. The only thing he goes well, against I mean, them, they. I he, mean, he, he ends up not doing it because of, because of, I think, Scorpio in itself. But I know. But I'm just saying it's just like <laughs> yes. they know what he's. They know what he's capable of. Yeah. And, and they're still giving him this, you know, this like task. They know that he. Like, obviously, he doesn't want to put the girl's life in danger, even though he believes she's dead. He can't take, doesn't want to take the chance that she's still alive. But still, I just found it very funny. It's like you're giving the one guy you can't trust. Yeah. Well, it's a dirty to job. follow the you rules. Know, he's, the, he's the dirty guy, and this is the dirty job. And expecting um, him to follow the rules. So he, and, and this is where he, I think his character starts to become unhinged, where he, you know, uh, there's this great sequence where uh, he runs them all over town with the bag. Yeah, to make yeah. sure he's not being followed, which he 
it really is because he's he's wired himself and his partner Chico's following by car. But it's a great sequence where he's. It's another thing where you see a lot of times in these movies that this was new. Yeah, yeah. Where he's he's going from phone booth to phone booth and he has a lot of time to get there. So there is literally a clock. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, there is a clock with the three a.m. Um, her die. But there's also this aspect of like. I'm going to call the... He, although he never says, like, you got 10 minutes to get there. They're just like, get there as fast as you can. Um, so it's like he's got... From point A, he's got... He has to get to point B as fast as he can to get the next call. If he doesn't answer the phone... She's dead. It's, she's dead. Yeah. And then he has to get from point B to point C as fast as he can. And if he doesn't get there in time, and it's, she's dead. And it's like he's carrying $200,000 and, like, used 10s and 20s. And, and, and you can imagine that bag starting to get heavy when he's running <laughs> all over town. And he's not really allowed to use public transportation until, like, yeah, near I mean, the end. basically this idea of, like, the obstacle race yeah. is put into this. And so we, it ends up culminating with that they there's a struggle there's a fight all that i mean watch the movie yeah <laughs> so then it culminates with that they find out that he is like the groundskeeper or, or he works at the football stadium so they go there to see if he's there he's harry's got like this other guy with him this john other, this, john um this other john partner. mitchum and then so they get there he even says to him, we have no search warrant. And he just says, yeah. you know, we, we got to go. This is where, like, the the rules of, like, this is police where they, procedure starts to really become And this is when it starts offending of people. People, like, you know, uh, critics are like, you can't do this. You know, and he goes in, you know, he, he finds, he's literally within seconds, he breaks into the groundskeeper's little area where this guy Scorpio lives, that there's a pot of coffee on, the yeah, kettle's yeah. boiling, he's just been there. You yeah, know, and he yeah. hears him, he chases him out onto the field. It's a great little sequence. Um, his partner turns the lights on, he stops, he shoots him in the leg, well, walks the, up to him. Eastwood's like, get lost. Yeah, he like, goes, you need partner. any help? And he's like, no, go out and get some air, fat so. And he's like, sure, yeah, you're yeah. the boss. And then, so Eastwood knows that this is not, that he's not going to be following the rules. Yeah. Like, well, he, doesn't he, wants, wants, he doesn't want somebody, of another police officer, held accountable for this. He shoots the, he shorts, he shoots Scorpio. So he can't yeah, run away. He, he walks up. Scorpio is. Beautiful you know, sequence shot, by the way, because like we've been talking about how we don't have a lot of close-ups, but when those lights go on and they frame him perfectly, that's another thing for the widescreen. When I saw this yeah, freaking, yeah. you can never see the framing of Eastwood with the forty-four Magnum. And to see the lights going with him perfectly framed, it was like, oh my gosh, it was so, so amazing. Yeah, it's a, some like iconic, like back of the box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, photo right there. So he walks up, Scorpio's, you know, doing his fit. All I my know rights. my rights. Yeah. You know, you can't do this. You know, Eastwood knows that this girl, girl, if the girl's still alive at all, like, it, she, like it's, she doesn't have long. So he. Steps on his wounded leg, basically tortures yeah, to get, the location get the out of him. And then we have like the iconic Beautiful. helicopter shot that goes okay. from them on the field. All the way out of the stadium into the fog with a beautiful score uh, piece by Lalo. Just it's it's like the, representing the tor- turmoil in the mind of Scorpio, which is just very avant-garde jazz stuff dropping and you know. And in most movies, that's the end. Maybe there would be one more. See, short scene to kind of wrap it up like they pull the girl out and she goes to her parents or whatever oh, <laughs> you know what you. I mean? like this would be the end of any other movie but now this is and this next- I think would be act three this is like the end of act two where it's like he finds her and it's interesting as an aside you look at nudity in this movie there's a lot of nudity in the movie but it's not it's done 
and none of it's in a flattering light. Yeah, it's like not in any kind of like sexual. You know, it's almost like you're almost like want to look away, especially this scene when they they pull her body they out. Pull, she's dead. They she's pull stark a girl naked. out of out of like a hole, naked, and she's dead. And then this is like the following. Scene. We're like, okay, we caught the motherfucker. Like this is done. Like, yeah, the movies. You know, like Harry won, and now the next scene is like, no, he didn't, because she's dead, and then we find out that because of the lack of proper Search police uh, procedure, like evidence is not admissible in the court. So anything they found, his confession, whatever they found at the stadium, including the rifle, the, gun, the machine gun, everything, everything, they couldn't. If they wanted to try him, they couldn't give this to a jury they couldn't show the jury this stuff now this is one of the points in the movie which I guess you know critics say is silly which I, I admit to it is a little silly well why wouldn't he know and I think he does know but the point of the matter is that he wasn't bothered by it of course he's a he's an inspector you know so he's gonna know you know the law but I think he just you know yeah I don't think it's that he doesn't know I think it's he's trying to save the girl. Yeah, and they and, and they admit that like okay, the, the 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 court would certainly have to look at your you know your the girl detention. Yeah, but you can't condone the torture. He basically tortured the guy because the guy wouldn't give him up. But then, you know, and, but it's and it's startling at the end of that. The, you know the uh, the the DA is also another great uh, character actor, uh, Joseph Summers, who is from Daryl. Remember Daryl that movie. Oh yeah, yeah. He's the, he he he's one of the guy. He's the guy who I think uh, invented Daryl, you know, the robot. Um, and they, you know, he's like, I'm gonna. Br- you're, you're lucky you're not getting charged. You know, this is you know what the hell is wrong with you? And they brought in a third party who's like a a law professor, and he says, Yeah, you know, the the subject's wor- rights were violated. You violated like fourth, fifth, and the sixth and fourteenth amendments. Yeah. And then East was like, Well, what? And then Eastwood says, Like, well, what about the girl's rights? She's raped and left in a hole to die. You know, who cares for her? And it's also interesting. A, a, a lot of academics. Uh, throughout the movie, note that uh, they always frame well the uh, b- the the bureaucrats the their desks with the pictures of their wife and children. So they're always the mayor, uh, Dirty Harry's lieutenant, this DA. All, there's always pictures of families. Yeah, and there's also you know? very subtle in the mayor's office. There's also a very subtle thing, which is like the mayor's phone is like made out of gold. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it, it's it's like, but it's a very <laughs> it's a very like ritzy phone, and it's a very ritzy uh, office. mayor's office, it's like yeah. oak or no, not even oak. It's like cherry wood. It's very yeah. like you know he's 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 up like on a perch or whatever. He was elected in there, um, so. You know, Eastwood says, like, what about her? And he's like, well, you know, w- we're concerned about her rights, too, but you just can't do this. And then he kind of insinuates, well, you know, he, he won't be out there long. I'm going to, you know, keep an eye on him. And they're like, well, we won't stand for police harassment. And I find it very telling. He says, well, you know, you think you're crazy. You think you've seen the last of this guy, and, the, and he's going to kill again. They're like, what do you think? And he's like, it, it, it's almost like he, he's like, well, don't you get it? He's like, you know, he likes doing it, yeah, yeah. you know? And then cut to the very next scene hugely the other big controversy that people were up in arms about. What do you mean? We see children playing on a, uh, uh, another big theme of this movie is kids. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they're playing in, a, in, a, in a, a yard and you see the peace sign on uh, spray painted on a wall and up comes Scorpio and he's got a peace buckle and yeah, a distorted peace sign. Bu- and people bu- were buckle. up in arms about that. How dare you have him go around with a, with a you know, uh, expressing peace and harmony when in real life that's probably what a guy would have done in San Francisco at the time. You want to blend in. Yeah, why not yeah, get yeah. something that's, you know, t- but it's a great, it's a distorted peace symbol. So it's, it's, it almost goes to. Yeah, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a little off, off kilter. Yeah, just and like it's, it's just like him, you know, and, and then, you know, Eastwood starts following. Also, I mean, you take into, 
Scorpio, I mean, okay, you got the Zodiac Killer. But also, and this goes, you know, three years later or two years later or whatever into, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This idea of, like, astrology and, like, horoscopes and stuff. This is when this kind of, this idea of, like, the horoscopes and 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 this, it starts to become kind of a thing in, in like, kind of culture. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, even that aspect of it is very much to say that because like, OK, in the in the world of Dirty Harry, the Zodiac Killer doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this is the Zodiac Killer. You know, so if we we're looking at that, like, OK, he's going to go by Scorpio. You know, he lives in San Francisco. He's a bit of a long hair. Like, he's probably a guy. Like, I don't necessarily think that he thinks of what he's doing as being like not peaceful like he is probably in his own mind justifying like this mind in you know part of like this hippie peace love movement you know so he he would wear but this was this was an assault on people's beliefs that how dare you have this 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 guy having that and that's why the fact that he calls himself the zodiac like he calls himself scorpio is i think Kind of a indicative symbol of of that, that time. Like, he thinks of himself as being part of like this, it's just this hippie mode. The only problem is he's not playing with a full deck. That's <laughs> <As we're, laughs> what we're learning. Wrong with them, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and then it ultimately goes, uh, and then this is another huge thing. The, this leads to Eastwood's following him, and he knows Eastwood's following him, so he wants to get rid of him. He does, and the next thing he does is he pays this guy to beat the crap out of him. This was yeah. Well, that's he's hugely controversial at the but time. Bef- yeah, but basically, what the, the Dirty Harry, the, like Harry says, okay, like he's gonna go free, he's gonna kill again. In my off hours, he's I'm gonna a, watch him. Yeah, I'm gonna trail him. Like I'm gonna watch him stub I his toe, and I'll be. I there. don't know. You know, you could go with he's either he wants to catch him in the act, get him for real, or I think more he just wants to prevent it from happening again. Whatever. At whatever like personal cost to Harry, you know, like if me being there is going to stop him from doing it, like if it's going to save another life, great. And if me being there is going to catch him in the act so that we can put him away for real, you know, even better. It's also interesting to note uh, for the novice out there that it's the first time you see him wearing sunglasses in the movie. He wears gargoyles and through the whole Dirty Harry series, he always has a new pair of gargoyles. So each movie he has the newest pair. It's pretty cool. But it's almost like after this killing, this has solidified the character that now is going to be in the rest of the movies. This, yeah. you know, he was what he was before. He had the closure of whatever happened to his wife, his world, but dealing with this particular case. Yeah. And if you look at it like symbolically, he's now wearing these glasses. This is now him. He's the bitter, you know. I also think, I mean, you, you know, you said like, you know, in this story, we're entering Act Three, but I also think this would be like the top of Act Two in a lot of other stories. That's why I think like what I was getting at, like this movie structurally is more like four acts, yeah, than like a traditional three. Like you could argue and kind of fit it into like a three act structure, but now we have because like the the idea of following him from like the time he gets to released. To as we go forward, and he kidnaps the, the bus full of kids. Yeah. Like that's really another act. Yeah. And then the hostage kids to the end of the movie is kind of really the final act. Yeah, it's like the coda. Um, I mean, Eastwood even describes himself. He's he has a great quote that says, "The movie is not about a man who stands for violence. It's about a man who can't understand society tolerating violence." 
unquote. Um, so by that point, then Scorpio ends up losing him. He pays a guy to beat him up, and that's yeah. and then he blames uh, Dirty Harry yeah. for it. That was another thing people couldn't do. How dare this guy would never. This is so preposterous that this guy would pay somebody the violence of this movie. Yeah, you know yeah. the uh, you know the and that was startling to see somebody. Nowadays, just, that that would be in like an episode of whatever. Yeah, CSI on, on, like, on network on or something very like Lifetime. You, you know, know it's, it, it, it's very uh, it's. I mean, it's almost realistic. Like I could you could see someone oh, doing definitely. that. Definitely. I mean, it's something that would. I don't. You know. I don't. I'm not sure about. You know. Yes. It, it's. It could happen, but it in terms of like realistic in terms of realistic in the world of cinema, like the way criminals are now portrayed, it's something that you know is def- it was a, it was a it was a scene that's very ahead of its time. I think. Yeah. And basically, I mean, we're saying he pays some guy to beat him up. He pays some guy to like really kick fucking the shit out kick the shit and out then of him, to qu- just so that he can pin it on Harry. Harry, and I think this is more telling of Scorpio than maybe any other scene in the movie that in he, terms of he's willing to go through that. is that one he's crazy yeah and two he's smart yeah he's manipulative he knows that this is a way to get Eastwood off his back yeah for the time being it's not that's it's not something that someone who you know it's not it's not a plan by like an unintelligent person yeah it's like he, he knows the system he knows that he knows he, he's going to play the media against Eastwood, and he knows that, as far as like you know, the system is concerned, Dirty Harry already has like two strikes against him on this case, you know, or at least one. Yeah, and so like this is this one way to or... screw this asshole who's like stopping, who's trying to prevent me from pulling, you know, doing what I'm here to do, which is to like murder and pillage, and then uh. My, and this also has my father's favorite scene in the movie, which I love. Where you know he says, uh, "You still you you really want two hundred dollars worth?" And then and then he says, "You know you still want two hundred dollars worth?" And he's like, "Every penny, you black son of a bitch." So he beats him up a little more. And he throws him out. <laughs> then my dad's <laughs> favorite line is, "This one's on the house." He kicks him again. And my dad used to always laugh. But at I always that. thought like it's it's for a movie that's not pulling any punches and a movie that's already dropped the n word. Yeah. I was thought I. He my, just said, "You black my, son of a bitch." My first, ex, and my first impression is like, "Why didn't he drop the N word again?" And, the, and then my second, and then right after that, I think like, he might, he probably wouldn't have made it out of that scene alive had he, had he dropped. The He's N-word. Like, what? <laughs> what you say? Uh, and then <laughs> Scorpio would have been killed in that scene. Yeah, movie he, over. So he's he's actually smarter than you know. He's even like you're saying. He is quite smart. Uh, and then in the very next scene, you know, um, Eastwood goes to his partner who's recuperating who got shot halfway through, and the partner's like, "I'm not coming back. I've got t- yeah, teaching go credentials." Teach. Then he talks. Then Eastwood walks the the partner's wife out, Chico's wife's out, and this is where we get the backstory of what happened to Eastwood. She's saying she and she's giving the counter argument to the, the 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 pig this pig that. How do you deal with it? I can't deal with it uh how does your wife deal with it and, and he says well she never really got used to it and what do you mean and she said uh she was killed a drunk cross the center line and that's very telling because you look in a world that that harry lives in where he he prevents crime and he realizes the the i guess the arbitrariness arbitrarily violence or, or evil will come down on people that this is something he couldn't he couldn't yeah, prevent. Yeah. His wife was killed in a traffic accident. He couldn't be there to stop it. And now he realizes that the world is evil. 
and he realizes like a guy like Scorpio is evil incarnate, yeah. and he needs to really sort it out. But that's that's all the real backstory you get of him is that yeah, yeah my wife died, and then she even asked him, well, then "Why do you, you still see, do like, it?" You see like his apartment and like a mini fridge. Yeah. You know, and that's about it. That's yeah, like yeah. We, we get we get that story, and we see his living quarters. Yeah, I mean, and, and they end up showing that in Magnum Force, the sequel, his 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 little apartment where it's just it's not much. It, it looks exactly like, and that's another thing to bring up the 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 doppelganger of him and Scorpio, where people compare that their foils, where he basically lives in the same kind of a shack Scorpio lives in. We yeah. don't find that out until Magnum Force, but he lives in. He has nothing. He has a bed. He has a fridge, and that's it. And also. The aspect of Scorpio looks at people as a voyeur, and so is Harry in a yeah, way. Yeah. Harry's watching, you know, through the scope at one scene when they're waiting, they're on a stakeout yep. waiting for Scorpio to appear. He's watching what's happening in, yeah. in people's windows, and he even says, Harry, you, gotta, you owe it to yourself to live a little, yeah, yeah. you know, that kind of a thing. So it's very much, it's interesting, you know, what, he does kind of the same thing. And, to a I extent. mean, like you said that, like, people who are against this movie you know, like Eastwood is rebelling against the same things that like they're like, really it's like him and Scorpio are, but they're both rebelling against the same thing. And yeah. like, if you want to put some kind of reasoning other than just like some psychopathic, you know, need to kill, like I think in his own mind, Scorpio is doing this as a rebellion against, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make the, the mayor pay me. Uh, you know, I'm gonna. He's like his whole his whole part. Get, well, his whole part is like, and like you, the cops made the like pigs. they're the pigs made me do this. Yeah, you've you've done this. To, you've made me do this. And and it's interesting. There's a lot of. Um, they're both rebelling against the same system. There's a lot of cool things that Andy Robinson uh, takes credit for in the movie. He takes credit for the scene when he when uh, he has uh, Callahan run all over town, gets him in front of the cross in the park to get the, the money, and he says, "Take your gun out." Takes the gun and goes, "My, that's a big one." Uh, Andy Robinson says he improv that everyone laughed but they kept it in and then the other stuff on the phone where he, when he's taunting him when he's running from location to location he's like hubba 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 pig bastard that so he very much injects you know you pig son of a bitch you're yeah, a pig yeah. you know you're a fascist in the novelization it's interesting on uh, at the end of the mo- at the end of the book they actually tell you uh, a little bit about uh, Scorpio which we don't know we never learned his name in the movie uh, in the in the book, we, we, he, he gives his birth date as November fourteenth, uh, nineteen thirty eight, which is a Scorpio sign, and they say that uh, his name is Charles Davis. He's he, they think he's an escaped mental patient. Uh, he was committed when he was fourteen for killing his parents and younger sister with a shotgun. He escaped five years ago, uh, five years later, and has been seen since. And they think that's and he's from Springfield, Massachusetts. So they think that's who. Scorpio is, but that's never told in the movie, so that's why we yeah, like yeah. to bring the the novelization, <laughs> the backstory. It's a, it's a fun little thing, a little little habit to have there. You get the little tidbits, little backstories. Uh, yeah, little. So we 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 always wholeheartedly uh, deliver um, recommend the the novelization and our sidecast on podcast. And our sidecast about <laughs> novelizations and photo novels. So uh, it's it's interesting that that he does this, and it leads to the end of the movie where he he takes a busload of kids. And then he's doing the same thing again. He's, I want money. You know, I'm going to kill them all. You know, uh, a mayor, again, is very, uh, very yeah. accommodating. Sure. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to look bad. I'll do it. They ask Eastwood again. Eastwood's like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? <laughs> you know, ask Eastwood again. And he says, no. He goes, you can After. get yourself, you know. <laughs> and it's interesting because people say that, like, you know, it, it, in this part of the movie, he says, no, you can get yourself another delivery boy and storms off. And it's interesting in the 
in the novelization, they actually give you the note that, that, he, that he writes, and you don't hear the note in the, in the movie. And then they also says, at the end of the note, it says, Callahan delivers. Mm-hmm. So instead of asking him in the movie, he wants that. And he says, no, you guys can get yourself a different delivery boy, and he leaves. So I guess audiences were to think that he's just going home, like, you know, oh, he's off the case. You know, it's going to sort itself <laughs> gonna out. I'm going to get myself a hot dog. Yeah, I'm going to just sit home. back on the couch and just I'm, I'm out of it. And uh, Eastwood, I th- Callahan knows at this moment that he has to deal with this. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he, he ends up, uh, you know, jumping onto the bus. Eastwood does all his own stunts in the movie. He, he does the stunt, jumps on the bus. It ends up um, ending in a quarry where Eastwood had grown up in the San Francisco area. He knew this, this, uh, this rock gravel pit area. He used to fish there so he said let's shoot it there that's really cool and the whole coda happens at this area um what do you think of scorpio on the bus because this is another thing when i was little you didn't have that uh in the edited version on tv so when i saw those the parts like uh for the first time edited when he starts slapping the kids he's like all your mothers are i'm gonna kill all your mothers so then what was in the tv version he just gets on the bus he gets on the bus and then like when they're like i want to go home i think he says like he slaps one of them and he's like you know he's like you know just start keep singing you know row 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 your boat and he's like acting like a maniac and then then his music starts he's like come on stay in the right lane so you miss all that where he's like i'm gonna kill all your mothers all your like how terrifying of a you know he's telling these kids all your mothers i'm gonna come 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 find and kill all your mothers he's just such a good villain yeah yeah well i mean i think that's his scene is great i mean i his it's a guy who is you know coming off you know he's unhinged (laughs) you know he's trying very much to be well he's under control it's like it's like he's losing not to say he's in control, but he's losing control of. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he like likes to be able like to. I don't think like he. It's weird because it's like it doesn't want to. It doesn't seem like he wants to come off as a bad guy in that scene. Like he's like, let's sing some songs. Let's go to the like ice cream factory. He's trying to be like a nice made. guy. Yeah. You know, to the kids. Like it doesn't until seem, they st- he starts losing his patience with them. He until like they're ki- until they're being kids. And then he starts you know, beating the shit out until of like they're scared, he starts to lose a little bit of control in the, of the situation, and then he loses his shit, and he's like slapping the kid, and he's you know hits another kid, and that's when you know he's saying like what you said, you know, like I'm gonna like he's trying to be like okay now shut up, yeah, like I. <laughs> and the best way he knows how to shut up by saying he's gonna kill their mothers. Um, it, it's interesting to point out how he gets the gun in the first place. He walks to a liquor store. And he's, he says to the guy, like, you know, you're the guy has been holed up all these times. And he's like, yeah. And then he bashes the guy over the head, gets the gun from that guy. So it's like he clearly has, you know. He's well read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he also, I he's mean. He's up on his current events, even local ones. <laughs> and, it, and I guess it's, it's, it's hammering the point home where he doesn't care. And, it, and it, Eastwood basically hunts him down at the end of the movie. And we get the same speech again. But the, I think the speech is completely different now. That our, do you feel lucky speech? Yeah. Where... Now there's no humor in it. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing, and he's like, he's like, just give me an excuse. Like, to go ahead, like, make, make his day. He <laughs> really is wants him to make his day. You know, it's like, even though that's not said in this one. Yeah, and and it basically turns into that bitter, like, just do it. Yeah, just you know, I can't kill you in cold blood as much as I want to because he's not that person. But give me a reason, and he does, and he shoots him. It's and like then, in the first time he says it, knowing that the guy doesn't have the balls to do it. Yeah, you know, to pick, to go for the gun. Here he says it hoping. Well, because he, he, I think he ultimately like really knows. wanting Scorpio to have the balls to yeah. go for. And it. he does, and he, and, he, and he kills him. And it's, and it's interesting there, uh, 
they uh, Don Siegel wanted him to throw his throw his badge to the ground. Eastwood didn't want to because that's what uh, Gary Cooper did in High Noon, threw yeah, his badge yeah. out at the end. But in the last second, Eastwood agreed, and Eastwood actually had the idea of just throwing it out into the water, which we see. I, w- I wanted him to like skip it. Yeah, <laughs> ding 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 ding. You know, but it's interesting because then he he, you know, like we said that they didn't think there were going to be any other sequels. Yeah, He's yeah. had at that point. Well, There's no way you really got to put could it talk his way out. Like of it. there really were, movies weren't being like franchised like that, like yeah. this back then. I mean, Planet of the Apes. I mean, what really can you think of any like? Really, movies that were I guess James Bond and maybe other, than, other yeah James Bond. There it wasn't a big thing. It wasn't like today where you know a movie makes X amount of dollars. It's expected. In fact, like actors are already signed on to do sequels <laughs> like before they even do the first movie. So it was like no one would have had any kind of inkling that this movie would go on, that there would be a sequel to this, let alone four sequels to it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then he, I guess he realizes at the end, he's just, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I'm, I'm over being a cop. This case is literally ruined. Yeah, him. Yeah. He thought he was going to get killed, probably sorting this out himself. He didn't, so he just throws his badge away in disgust. And then the camera backs out, and it's a beautiful shot. You hear, which turns into be Harry's theme, this very, very just um, muted... Uh, calming theme that um, that uh, has been said to be a simple motif of sorrow and loneliness, emphasizing Harry's side, uh, sad and tired disposition. You know, and it's interesting to note that the camera zooms back and you see him walking away. You don't know where he's going, and it's almost like a dream. The camera starts off the, s- the same way, comes into San Francisco, leaves the same way, and then they choose to end every other sequel that in that way where you have his theme over whatever happens. At least the, the the next three or four movies, they always end in desolate places, the final shootout, and it's Eastwood kind of like walking away to that theme yeah. where the well, camera is a helicopter shot. It's that gunfighter yeah. riding off into the sunset. Yeah, we don't know where he's going, what he's doing. He doesn't even know. Um, so... I guess the other one last thing to bring up is the, is, is the gun, the forty four Magnum. This was huge. I mean, this, yeah, this yeah. actually boosted the sales of, I mean, everybody in the 70s wanted a forty four Magnum because of this. And Milius, John Milius says it was him who helped bring the idea of a forty four Magnum into um, the script. Eastwood brings up in the third movie in The Enforcer, he talks about, and they, they say to him, like, you know, well, in the second one, which is really interesting, they show that he is a sharpshooter. You know, he goes to the range, he enters in contests, and that's how he's such... He's such a good shot with the gun. And he also justifies saying, like, he's not shooting for people technically out there. He's not shooting 44 Magnum loads because then the gun would be too unwieldy. He's shooting 357 loads through the 44 so he can have some sort of control. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, you know, nowadays, it's a huge police, cannon. you know, movies, it's, everybody are so. When you watch, like, police movies and TV shows, it's all, like, by the book, like, the two hands running around or the stances are all right. Yeah, he just he's just shooting. He's wheeling this thing around one handed, like this cat. In yeah. I mean, it's it, it, at the time, it was the most powerful handgun. It's not the most powerful handgun anymore. Um, and you get to uh, Ty Daly. In the third one, she's her, his partner in the Enforcer, and she says, "Like, why do you have that?" And he goes, "Well, you know, the three fifty seven is a good mag, a good gun." But he said he's seen thirty eights, which the thirty eight is the police issue. You know, the bullet bounce off windshields, so yeah. he wants an edge. And Milius's original idea was like he is the hunter. This is you know 
the, the, the criminals are his prey, so he wants the best advantage possible. So I find it interesting that it's almost like he's the municipal worker who was given a hammer or whatever, and he's gone out on, you know, on his own dime, bought his own. Yeah, bought like a more superior piece. Yeah, of and then, then this is just going to level the playing field for him. So it's now interesting. Now also, you know, what's interesting from a filmmaker standpoint, and this is something that was brought to my attention by my friend Stephen, uh, Stephen Autobello, who his background is in film sound, actually came in for a seminar when Dion and I were a freshman in film school to teach us about sound. Now he has these things online and you might be able to find it on YouTube because uh, he blogged. He, there was a period there where he blogged and stuff and he will go to film schools and teach like a little quo- colloquium about uh, film sound and the power of it and making the choices of sound effects and film and audio editing and sound editing and, and stuff like that. So he has, and he'll show these clips that he's made. And so he has a clip um, that he shows in these, these things uh, that's from Magnum Force, okay. the sequel to Dirty Harry. And it's about the sound of Dirty Harry's gun. This is interesting. I know what you're talking about. This is the go to the sound design because it's interesting. In the original cut of Magnum Force, it wasn't like this. But when they redid the sound for the, for the, for the DVD release... They they changed it to what you're talking about. So what you're talking about, you're talking about the scene in the in the when in he, the plane in the plane. Yeah. And it's interesting that Eastwood Eastwood's character is not using a 44. He's yeah. using a 38. But in the guise of cinema, anything he picks up will have his sound. Will have his sound. Like no matter what gun he fires, it'll it's have gonna that. Found, it's going to sound like that. The 44. It's, like, it's a very it's distinctive like w- sound. It's like when Eric Clapton plays. He'll pick him, can play any guitar. But when Eric Clapton plays guitar, it sounds like Eric Clapton. <laughs> you know, like it has a sound. So in this scene in, in Magnum Force, because I, I, I'd be surprised if if we ever get to Magnum Force as a podcast for sleepover movies, it'll be a long time since we're just doing this now. He's not using his gun. No, he's using like a thirty. He's dressed up gun. like as a pilot. He goes on as like under kind of like undercover almost to onto the plane. So he's not using his gun, but when he fires his gun inside the plane, it's the sound of dirty Harry. Yeah. Gun. It's interesting. And it, and, it's and it also, it makes a, you know, it, when you take it into the context of dirty Harry, the first movie, um, it does give him a distinction, uh, an audio distinction as, as a character in those f- scenes. Like it does, it can get, you know, you can lose track of who's who and what's happening during these action scenes, but you know Dirty Harry's the sound yeah, of Dirty Harry's the aesthetic sound. sound, and it also it gives him uh, authority because that sound is way more powerful than everybody else's, uh, you know, every other gun that's being fired. Yeah, I mean it's massive. Um, it become I mean the gun becomes like we talked about San Francisco because a character being a character very much like the gun, uh, maybe not a character. In terms of like dramatic sense or whatever, but it's it's a signature yeah. to him, and it's and it it's visually becomes part of Dirty Harry's you know silhouette. It's part of that. It's a it's a piece of you know. It's, it's an extension it, of his it, arm. It's an extension of him as a character and him as a physical presence, and also therefore you know in audio as well. Um, I guess to touch on lastly before there's in the movie, I think one of the only scenes that doesn't really further the 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 actual uh story there's a scene where he has to go disarm a jumper yeah and uh the jumper oddly enough looks like the actor william sadler (laughs) very much so which is funny but uh 
I think it, it gives an example of, of, of Harry and what he has to do. And it's, it's, you know, all the dirty jobs, talk this jumper off the roof, <laughs> which is directly taken from Lethal Weapon. I mean, like, yeah, almost yeah. like shot by shot, they do that in the first Lethal Weapon movie, yeah, which is yeah. funny. Uh, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, it's just another, like, you know, I didn't grow up with this movie. Yeah. You know, so, like, my fondness for this movie is not near, like, yours. Uh, and as I pointed out, like, they keep on asking Dirty Harry to do these jobs and asking him to not be Dirty Harry. But they know, jobs. they know. This scene I found personally found like totally ridiculous yes like they show up and the, the they're just like you need to go up and do it like yeah. well that, that another <laughs> thing that pissed firemen off as well because i firemen were like no we would do that you know it's like <laughs> it was just <coughs> it you're right it's a scene that doesn't drive the story at all it's a scene that i don't think gives any kind of positive character no it just it just shows you it's ridiculous another dirty job that comes along but it, the reason i bring it up is that this is the scene that uh siegel was under the weather and had the flu that night so eastwood said he directed and they had slated it to be six nights and eastwood got it done in one night and he was very proud of that and he was very like you know look look at this is what i can do and, and f you guys more you know the executive warners you're saying we need this a lot of money and eastwood be- became very much known for that when he went to direct that he's always comes in under budget. He always does things one or two times. Doesn't do a lot of takes and all that. And this is uh, a part for him shining as a director, doing that scene very minimally lit, all that kind of a thing. Um, so I think that it's it's worth a mention because of that. But I mean, it's it's even interesting because he doesn't even care for the jumper. He's just like you know, I, I've I've seen people do this all the time and my friend even got killed doing this so just give me your name <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. and then he knocks the guy out and then if you yeah, listen to the I mean, dialogue it's, it's, it's i honestly this is a scene where like i feel like the movie would be a no stronger yeah movie without this yeah it's, scene that's it. i i think it's the only scene that doesn't need to be and it's my least favorite in the movie the other one i guess a favorite of mine is the scene where uh scorpio kills the, the black child or it's interesting and i think that's the first indication that uh callahan is becoming unhinged when they go to the to the to the site and they're like you know uh, yeah. it was a young black boy blew part of his face away yeah and well, we don't off. we don't see the killing no that, yeah, you, you never see, see the, the aftermath yeah the and you don't even what you're then, talking about yeah we're you, seeing the discovery of the body they, they they've already found the body he was killed by a high plow or rifle and you don't even see what it, what the you you hear the cop says blew part of his face away yeah yeah and, and then, then we see the reaction of it, his partner we only see the reaction the, to eastwood and, and chico chico actually goes and throws up and eastwood you know and it's very startling. You know, like anybody knew who the boy is, and then the, there was a woman standing there. His name's Charlie Russell. I'm his mother. He was only 12 years old. And it's very telling. He was like, "Oh my God!" It's it's starting yeah, yeah. to hammer home. And I think it's one of the first scenes that you're seeing that it's you know he has to stop this guy. But that becomes a motif in every one of his movies with the, with the uh, partner, where something bad happens, and he says to the partner, "Why don't you go take care of the mother, or why don't you go see to the girl?" So it, it happens in, in, in quite a few. It's funny, um, and then. As they end up doing sequels for the movie, it's funny because they, they kind of flip the script where in this movie it was bashed because it was too right-leaning. So how do you change it on its hinge for the next movie, Magnum Force? It's now the he's against the elite. He's like the leftist where the, the, there's cops killing, yeah. and he's trying to stop the cops from killing. And then in the third movie, it, it, something else with, with women's right, you know. And then even by the fourth sudden impact, it's almost like the, it's the rape revenge that you've seen a lot of like the slasher movies. So as they went on, they went in, uh, they, they kind of were innovating unique ideas, but Eastwood himself says he didn't see much of a future for the character after the third one, but Warner got him to do two more. So uh, what'd you think uh, out of mega joke colas? 
We we do we usually do five. Five or ten, you can do. <laughs> I think we usually do five. So I'd, I'd give it a three. Three out of five. Three out of five. Like I said, it's not. I, I, this movie isn't as near dear to my heart as it is uh, you. Um, you know, it's not like I didn't grow up knowing who Clint Eastwood was, yeah. and um, I probably was more familiar with the westerns than I was. I mean, I feel like it's it's interesting we talk about it being a, a kind of a modern day western. It's also you know kind of in a lot of ways. Eastwood's character in the Leone westerns is kind of, in a lot of ways, the birth of kind of this anti-hero kind of thing, and and the as this as that becomes like the real trademark of kind of this kind of cinema in the seventies, we see that like Dirty Harry really is, uh, you know, kind of the start of what later becomes like Snake Plissken or Mad yeah. Max or <laughs> whatever, whatever you know, else. like even you know movies that aren't even cop movies but this i but this you know this this role of uh of kind of like the anti-hero is kind of really you know in in born with this with this movie in a lot of ways and so i mean i give it a lot of uh credit um and i also feel that like not like i said earlier like not seeing it in the context of the time i think is a big hindrance for a viewer yeah, if you're just stumbling today. across it. Because, um, one, like, what's going on, like, socially and politically uh, uh, in the day of 1971, and also, like, we've discussed it being very cliche now. Yeah. Um, which it wouldn't have been in 1971. Um, so, I mean, for all those reasons, like, it's I'm not as crazy about this movie, and I do find a lot of it silly yeah to a certain extent like this specifically the scene we just talked about with the thing jumper and um so yeah so like you know i i I enjoy it i think especially the first half of it is slow yeah uh um and i'm not one that really cares about that so like that didn't really bother me but i could see that being um like not a whole lot happens yeah (laughs) they certainly they take the their sweet time yeah, to get into it, yeah, you know? which is interesting. Which is um, I, it definitely a stylistic choice as well yeah. that they make that they're going to just let it unwind how it does. So I mean, I know? think which it, is an aspect I like of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that this one is for everybody. Yeah. Not that any of the movies that we've talked about on this glorious show of Saturday Night Movie Slayers is, but I think this would be the one that would be a real stretch. Uh, for a casual movie fan. Um, it's also the oldest movie we've done yeah. so far. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's timing and pace is, is, is very different than a lot of the other stuff we've talked about, but uh, it is enjoyable. There's a lot of really great stuff in it, including Lalo Schifrin's score, um, Eastwood uh, as, as, a, as an actor. Yeah. I think that's a great job that, you know, uh, Scorpio, you know Andy uh, Robinson. Andy Robinson's great, and yeah, um, Don Siegel's uh, a legend, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Hellraiser, great, great movie with Andy Robinson. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, Christ, he's wept. in Cobra too. He's he? in Cobra too. He plays he plays the guy that's uh, that uh, what's his face ends up punching out at the end. They're both in Cobra. Yeah. Rennie uh, Santoni and uh, and him are both in Cobra, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like it a lot. I, I out of Sleepover Stars, I probably give it four to five or five out of five. Um, I think it's clutch if you are uh, uh, a police genre fan, police cop movie, or an action fan, or a thriller fan, that kind of a thing. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's dark. Um, 
literally it's dark as the movie progresses <laughs> that it does get very dark as when the tone of the movie so does the a lot of it's shot at night which is cool um and uh, yeah you're right i think it's not for everybody um uh, I don't know if if I think the violence holds up. I don't know if it'd be still appalling to people because you're so inundated with it today. You uh, know? Yeah, I don't know if it's. I don't think it's as appalling uh, because of what people are used to today. But I think it's. I think holds, it's startling. I think it holds up. Like I think it's. You know, I don't think you would. I don't think it gets the same reaction. But at the same time, I think the way it's what happens and the way it happens rings true to what people are used to today. Like I said, I think it's it's very ahead of its time in that yeah. way. So I think it's not, it wouldn't be considered lame or cheesy by today's standards, yeah. but I don't think it would be considered, you know, like over the top and as appalling as like you said. So I think it, it's in that sense, I feel like that is something that a view like viewers today would not find uh, dated, dated. Yeah, like it's, I think it's redeemed. That, it's a yeah. redeeming quality of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I recommend it. Uh, check it out if you want. Uh, <laughs> we're winding down. Yeah, we're, we're we're slowing down. It's getting light out, so we should get going. Uh, Blake's mom's already told us to shut up. Uh, so um, please check us out. Uh, Saturday night movie sleepovers. Um, uh, I hope we haven't bored you too much with this cast. I think it's a very. Sp- I think it's a very special. Edition of the of the Saturday Night Movies. It's, it's the uh, it's the bike shop edition. You know, of, uh, we're going way, <laughs> we're going way down the alley, way down the alley. Something uh, that's uh, you know very near and dear to you, and uh, it's good for the cast. And, and it's, it's a very it's different kind of movie than what we've done. Yeah, so far. but it's something. It's a perfect example of something you'd watch on a Saturday night with your folks, like you know, or you'd fucking catch it on TV. Yeah, you're like, holy crap! What the hell is this? Yeah, so. uh, well, check us out. Check our other casts out. Uh, we're at SaturdaySleepovers.Palwitz.com. We're on uh, Twitter at Sat, S-A-T, Sleepovers, at Sat Sleepovers. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on iTunes. We're on Podroid. Uh, check us out on Podwits.com as well. We do a whole bunch of sidecasts there. Where we get uh, into topics, anything under the sun, which is very good. We've, we've already plugged it a half a dozen times yeah. in this cast. <laughs> we've talked a lot out. about movies, but yeah. it's, not about, it's not like these. We've hoped you like this. Please let us know what you think. Uh, comment. Uh, send us emails. Uh, you know, let us know. Tell a friend. Emails. I'd say you know, let's. You know, I think with the social media, like if you, I, I'm really curious to see if anybody, if there's something, requests. I want requests. Yeah, let's let us and, know. What and you I want to hear do. it. I want to see it on Facebook or Twitter. We better hear <laughs> about it because if not, we're gonna see you back in two weeks for another movie. Uh, and until next time, later.